Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 42 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are recording from a very different location today because Armageddon came to my house last week (laughs) and I have been without power since Friday. Chris and I were supposed to record on Friday, so it's Monday. The storm kind of pushed that off a bit. Yeah. We're recording at my gentleman caller's house. We are in West Hartford, Connecticut today. Yeah. So, um... So here we are, being flexible book cougars today. <laughs> we, as you know, with episode 40, we had a giveaway of four books. And congratulations to our listener, Sally. Yay, Sally. She was um, entrant number 42. Ironically, we're on episode 42 now. Oh, but, that is, yeah, yeah, look at that. And um, we use random.org. If you ever want to use a free thing to pick a number, you just put, you know, from number one to whatever, and then hit select, and it pops up the number. So, so it was Sally's lucky day. <laughs> and thanks to everybody who entered. Yeah, we really we appreciate, appreciate it. the enthusiasm. Yeah, it's yeah. fun to get your emails. Thank you for all the um, enthusiasm, as Chris said, and excitement about the book cougars. Yay. <laughs> all right. And I wanted to, uh, before we jump into what we're currently reading, I was at the Guilford Library the other day, and I we there's a bunch of flyers and pamphlets and everything when you first walk in, which is, I think, pretty typical of a public library. And at, one of them caught my eye. It's for choicesmagazinelistening.org, CML for short. And it's magazines for people who have vision impairment. So they can listen to magazines. And so, again, that's choicemagazinelistening.org. And we'll put a link in the show notes to this. But they have popular magazines from, like, National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, I think The Atlantic, a whole list of magazines on there. So I thought folks who are listening to our podcast might enjoy having access to those magazines. Yeah, and something a little different from audiobooks too. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Seems really I really love the idea. I did too. I mean yeah. it'd be cu- I'm curious. I'm gonna go look at the website of how they have it set up and how you can choose different articles and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I haven't had yeah. a chance to look at that yet, but it is it is a free service. Yeah, that's great. So. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to just do a little shout out to our friend Linda, who reminder everybody, she has been building a bookshelf for us on our Goodreads group page. There's actually a link that just says bookshelf. And she's already up to episode five of books. So it's a really great reference of just, you know, everything that we've talked about since the beginning of time. Yeah, thanks so much, Linda. That's awesome. Thank you. It's a currently reading. Currently reading, I am reading a book um, called The Hate You Give, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. It's been out for quite a time now and has gotten quite a few accolades. It's a YA book by Angie Thomas. And we're going to be seeing Angie at, I think, is it Bookshop Savoy or Mystic? I don't remember. I, I think it's Savoy okay. um, in Westerly, Rhode Island in April. In April, yeah. It's the so, um, One Book, One Rhode Island event that where we saw Brian Stevenson, Brian Stevenson last yeah. year and ran into Michael and right. recorded with him in the stairwell. Right. Well, yeah. maybe we'll see him again. That's cool. We should look at what the other events are, yeah. actually. Yeah. Now, I I also, Emily just had a library book. I don't know if you heard it crinkling yes. and crackling, <laughs> um, the cover. I also got a library copy out, but I know my friend Janet, who is a bookstore manager in L.A., last year said, if like, you read one book this year, have it be... The hate you give. She wow. loved it that much. So 
Well, I just started it, and I have to admit, I'm flying through it. It's a it's compelling and fast. Cool. So yeah, nice. Yeah. What about you? I'm currently reading. Well, I'm still plugging away at the selected letters of Willa Cather. And I'm, I can't wait to like, because I'm reading that one on my Kindle. Mm. And I mean, I have a variety of copies, but reading it on my Kindle, I think I mentioned like I'm doing it at night before bed and it's backlit and everything. And I have to worry about book light or anything. I can't wait to like compile my notes that I've been highlighting. Oh, cool. Because it's just so fascinating. And then to kind of categorize things, because she gives. She has a lot of opinions about writers and writing, you know, no surprise mm-hmm. there. And then just mentioning different people that were writing at that time or involved in the book world and things. And then yeah. just a lot of history, what is now history, you know, back then, uh, the Great Depression and things and how hard the farmers in Nebraska were hit and, and everything. So anyway, I'm also working on the Chicago poems of Sandberg. And are you sticking with the kind of one poem a day? Or? I kind of lost track a little bit because we had some friends in visiting. So when they were here, I completely forgot about it. Right. Um, yeah, that happens. Yeah. So, but it's it's sitting right there on my desk and I will get back to that. And I'm enjoying it. Not all of the poems are created equal. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's interesting and, and very relevant to today. I mean, what I think those came out in 1914, did I say? I don't remember. Yeah. Um, and just talking about the social conditions, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you just think, wow, not yeah. much has changed yeah. in terms of class and race yeah. and women's lot. Are, are you reading something else right no. now? Okay, because I'm currently reading one more, and it's one that I mentioned, uh, I think, in the last episode, but uh, it's Tangerine, a new novel that's coming out later this month in March uh, by Christine Mangan is her name. Now, I'm loving it so far. I had to put it down because I totally forgot that I had another book I needed to read first that I'd committed to review. Oh, no. (laughs) no. I'm glad I caught that in time. Um, And then, you know, I just recently redid all of my calendars and how I stay organized. And hopefully that's the only thing that I almost blew. Right. It's challenging, (laughs) like, when you go from one system to another or five systems (laughs) to try to condense to one. Um, But I'm really enjoying Tangerine. It's the book that was blurbed by Joyce Carol Oates. And Mm. that led us to talking with um, Eric, who blogs at Lonesome Reader. And so for those of you who want to get into Joyce Carol Oates, because you and I talked about like how prolific she is, like how do you possibly start reading an author like that? And Eric has a really wonderful video on answering that question. He's a super fan of hers. He's read tons of her. Um, So check that out. We'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, LonesomeReader.com is his blog, and he's also a booktuber, and that is a video, a booktube video on how to start with Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah, I'm, so. I, you know, I saw, I think we, this, this all transpired on Twitter or something, right? Yeah, or I think Instagram, so. I can't remember, I or Facebook, but um, <laughs> I, I want to read it. So when I, or read it, watch it. So when I get the link into the show notes, I'll just go ahead uh, and watch it. Cause, it, yeah. it. It blows your mind because he lists how many books in all these different categories she's written. Wow. She is hugely prolific. And not just that she's prolific, but it's quality. Ooh, <laughs> I I'm not sure I've ever sneezed on the podcast before, which is shocking since I sneeze all the time. Uh, but he talks about like how 
how good her writing is. It's quality mm. material, mm. but she's written novels, short stories, plays, poems, yeah. nonfiction. It's incredible. Oh, good. Um, and I've only read three by her. I went back and I looked at my uh, Goodreads, anyway, mm-hmm. tells me that I've read three. I read The Accursed Beasts and Middle Age of Romance. Hmm. So and I did enjoy all of them. And there are some of some of them sound almost like horror. Yeah, the accursed. Yeah, that was kind of like a gothicy type novel. Okay. About Woodrow Wilson, the president. Oh. Yeah, and it dealt a lot with with him and Princeton and racial issues of the time. Hmm. I I really enjoyed it. It was it was a different kind of book for sure. Hmm. Historical, gothic, wow. presidential. Yeah. She must be smart. You know, Eric mentions like some one of the books that he mentions is a book that she wrote about her process in writing and living and everything. So I thought that might be a neat one, yeah, to read. And then she also wrote a book about writing, um, but that one kind of about her life and her process. That that might be really interesting to see. Yeah. How does this person who is so prolific and very active on Twitter and in the world, she's doing events all the time. It seems mm. so. Anyway. Mm. Mm. Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates. So what have you just read? I just read The Echo Killing by Christy Doherty. Mm. Yeah, that's the book that I committed to reviewing uh, for Criminal Element. This book comes out March 13th, and it's not the novel, it's not the writer's first novel, but it's her first adult novel. She's written a series for young adults called Night School. I feel like I've heard of yeah, that. Yeah, I feel yeah. like I have too. But this is her first adult novel. And, you know, when you pick up a book and you're reading under pressure, <laughs> I didn't have, like, I love this book. I got immediately sucked in. I read it in two days. Wow. And I probably would have read it in two days had I not been on a deadline. Um, it's super easy to read. It's about a, a young woman who is a reporter in Savannah, Georgia, um, her mom had been killed when she was 12. She'd been, the mom had been murdered. She came home from school and found her mom in the kitchen. She's now a reporter for, the, I think, the Daily News in Savannah. It's a made-up newspaper from the author's acknowledgement okay. at the end. But Doherty herself had worked as a crime reporter. So she's a crime reporter now, the protagonist. Her name is Harper. There's another murder of another woman who has a 12-year-old daughter who comes home from school and finds her mom. And this crime scene is exactly the same. Mm. Now, they're not, the police aren't releasing that to the public, but Harper kind of sneaks around and looks and peeks in the window and is shocked at what she sees. Mm. Um, and what triggered her to do that was seeing the, t- the 12-year-old girl, like a mirror image of herself practically, being taken by the police and being so stunned. So mm. there's that immediate connection she has. And I won't say much more about this, the, the plot itself other than I thought it was really different and well done. And what I liked about Harper as a character was that she's, she's strong and independent without the, the writer kind of smashing it down your throats. Yeah. She's just that way. Yeah. Like, and she's that way because of her life. So it was very easy to read because of that, because you felt like you were just flowing in this part of this woman's life. Wow. So I like the character a lot, and I hear that there this is the first in a new series. Her young adult series was published under C.J. Doherty. Okay. That, that's her young adult series, but she uses her full name, Christy, um, for the echo killing. 
Again, that comes out March 13th, and it's from Minotaur Press, who I love. Oh, they, yeah. they publish Louise Penny and, yeah. and a bunch of other great crime writers. And this will be in Criminal Element, your review? Yeah. Okay, Yeah. Great. So we'll add that later when, you're, when your review comes out. We'll add that to the show notes. Cool. Yeah, Excellent. Forward good this for one. You. Well, yeah, good read. Really good. So I'm, yeah, I'm glad you made your deadline. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the review still has to be written. Oh, you have done that. I okay. finished it last night. Okay. Or yesterday, okay. I finished it, and I was just like, wow, so refreshing to yeah. read. A, and I, I, I'm saying it's a new author. It's her first. I mean, she's written other novels, right. but right. very good writer. Okay. Oh, and the setting was really cool, Savannah, Georgia. Which my experience was mainly just partying down there when I was a young Marine living in Jacksonville, North Carolina. We'd go down there for St. Patrick's Day, which is just around the corner yeah, again. Is. So they'd always have a big party down on the docks and stuff. That's funny. It was um, Savannah was in the running for my move when I decided when I ended up moving here instead. Oh, really? But yeah. Yeah. I think Same. it's a really cool place. It's a big food town now. Okay. Lots of great restaurants and um, it's on the water. Yeah, you know, it's warmer year round than it is here. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a and I've never been there, but yeah. it was a place that I would really want to go. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of the details other than a lot of Spanish moss and heat. Yeah, even in March it was pretty yeah. warm. But yeah. yeah, I mean, gorgeous Georgia's so pretty. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I just read White Houses by Amy Bloom. Cool. I loved it. Yeah, um, it's a it's a very quick read. And it's the um, about the relationship between Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt. It's told from the perspective of Lorena, or maybe it's Lorena. I think okay. it's Lorena is how Amy was pronouncing it. I did get to see her, which I'll talk about um, in our next segment. But um, you know, there were they wrote about three thousand letters back and forth to each other. And there's a famous biographer whose name is escaping me that wrote um, a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, which Amy Bloom used as a resource for the writing of this book. That was the first to allude to this relationship being a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And apparently she was completely thrown under the bus mm-hmm. making by other historians, you know, making that assumption or deducting that that was what what it was but Mm -hmm. she said you know she got the opportunity to read all of the letters and you know some of them they would write up to four times a day back and forth to each other so she said some of them were as simple as like you know don't forget to bring my white sweater you know or whatever but (laughs) some of them were like I can't wait to kiss the southwest corner of your lips you know and she said I don't know about you but I don't write that way to my (laughs) girlfriends when I'm just writing a regular letter about you know my life and the days you Mm -hmm. know so um, she said the letters were beautiful also just the penmanship you know you don't see that so much anymore we're all busy sending texts to each other and emails and and it takes, I, I thought one of the most fascinating parts of the book is that these two knew each other for 30 years, but the time span of the book is actually very short. And it's over the time when um, Roosevelt, the president, when he passes away. Okay. And But what she does very well is she marks the chapters with a date so you know where you are in time. Mm-hmm. But then throughout the course of the chapter, they revisit the past, you know, and they talk about the past. So you learn cool. all about them. But really, when you look at the span of time of the book itself, it's mm-hmm. a very short, you know. Interesting. Yeah. And, um so I really thought that was brilliant, and um, and it's it it's about kind of their coming and going from each other's lives, mm-hmm. you know, which is also what happens in 
long-term relationships, you know? Yeah. Um, and also the relationship that Lorena had with the president himself and the president's other mistress is part of the book too. So it also kind of begs the question that, you know, not living in the time of reality television and 24 seven news, there was a lot of, um, a lot happening in the White House, let's just say that, you know. Yeah. But, you know, obviously some people knew about it and, you know, the president knew and, you know, mm-hmm. Eleanor knew about the president's love life, you know, or so they say. You yeah. Know? Um, so I thought it was incredibly well written. It's my first Amy Bloom and I will definitely read some of her other novels. Great. And I, short stories. Yeah. I look forward to it. Yeah. I do want to read this one. Yeah. So how did she come about choosing to write about them? You did know, she talk about that when you saw she her? She did. It's a little... I have to go and read other things she's written because she said she was... She had to be in that time period for something else she was working on mm-hmm. and then started to read about the Roosevelts and said basically now she's an expert on all things Roosevelt, <laughs> you know. And I think she just got very, um, she was compelled by the story of the two of them and decided to write it, uh, about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know what that other project was. And if I could go back, I would ask her that question. Wow. Um, because I don't think she set off, you know, certainly to write about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very but, cool. And I know somebody who listened to the audiobook and said it was fantastic also. So oh, that's good. If you're looking for a little escape audiobook, mm-hmm. and not it can't be very long because the the book itself was just a couple hundred pages. So, okay. Yeah. So, and is it like are there letters? Is it kind of like an epistolary novel? No. It's all like straightforward mm-hmm. prose narrative. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Good to know. Yeah. Cool. I yeah. look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. And that would be a great one to read for Women's History Month, which yes. we are in now. Yes. Hello, March. Yes, March. Here we are. Yes, we need, maybe we'll talk more about Women's History Month in the next episode. That'd be great, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, just looking at that one book, White Houses, and just how historians have looked at the past with new eyes. Yeah. You know, history is not just a collection of facts, it's a bunch of interpretations, and new information's always being found, and new ways of interpreting, and interpreting? Interpreting. 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 (laughs) I interpreted that damn book. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, um... Yeah, interpretation and everything, yeah. and, and just looking at women's relationships, because I know for the longest time they were dismissed as, like, Boston marriages, you know, mm-hmm. these women who come together, the spinsters, to when some of that may have been true. There may have been women who just lived as friends, but I think it also completely disregarded women's sexuality, and mm-hmm. that women have sexuality with outside of men, mm-hmm. which a lot of people have a hard time accepting. Yeah. So... True that. True that, baby. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So did you read anything else other than our read-along book? Because I have another one, too. I don't... No, I did not. Did I? I didn't. No, just Morris. I also read one of the books that Michael Kindness talked about um, when we met up with him and that he also gave us a copy of, which was so exciting. And um, so I won't talk about it too much because he already kind of gave a little synopsis, but it was called Anatomy of a Miracle by Jonathan Miles. And this is the one that then it has a little asterisk and it says a novel. Mm -hmm. And the asterisk on the back says the true story of a paralyzed veteran, a Mississippi convenience store, a Vatican investigation, and the spectacular perils of grace. Mm -hmm. So he wrote it um, kind of as if it's nonfiction, Mm -hmm. even though it's a novel. Yeah. 
a little bit of a play, as Michael said, on how nonfiction now is kind of becoming novelized. Mm-hmm. That's not a word. I just made that up. Yeah, but, that sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved this book. How cool. I, I had to keep putting it down. Like, you know, I, I got it and then I got White Houses and I had put this down for White Houses and then I was like, ah, the Morris read along and I put it down. And so finally this weekend I finished it. But, um. It's a fantastic story. It reminds me, I recently heard on a podcast of a woman saying that um, a, a certain book when she was a kid just opened her eyes to reading because it just made her realize what can happen when you're lost in a story mm-hmm. and how an author can just take hold of your mind and you know make a left turn and make a right turn and you're just in it with them and yeah. shocked and you never saw it coming. And this book was like that to me. It was just... I got completely lost in the story. The characters were interesting. It was an interesting cast of characters. The point he, you know, he went back and forth with the different points of view, which mm-hmm. I really like. And it had a real twist that I did not see coming. Okay. So she she has a big old grin on her face, <laughs> listeners, when she said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's um, and it's a bit of a love story, but a very unexpected love story. Okay. And that's all I'm gonna say because this one could be high with. Spoilers. I guess the only other thing I will say is, you know, it's called Anatomy of a Miracle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's about the, the basic premise of it is this that this paralyzed veteran, and this happens at the very beginning, um, his sister rolls him down in his wheelchair to the local convenience store to buy some cigarettes for him. And she's in the convenience store. He's out in the parking lot. And she turns around and he stands up and walks. And this is after having been paralyzed for years. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes a question of, you know, like, was this a miracle or was there something medically involved in it? So one of the characters is his doctor at the VA. And then there's, you know, a priest who's interested in the fact that it's a miracle. And then the convenience store becomes a salvation where people come by the busload to be healed and to find miracles. Yeah. You know. Okay. So the whole idea of a miracle is very much a theme of, of the story. Cool. And that's out this month. Yeah, I think it's out it's maybe even next. Book. It doesn't, I couldn't find a date. It just okay. says March 2018. So um, if I find a date, I'll put it in the show notes. Highly recommend it. Anatomy of a Miracle by Jonathan Miles. Excellent. Biblio Adventures. Biblio Adventures. I went to see Amy Bloom. You did. <laughs> At the Willoughby Wallace <laughs> Memorial Library in Stony Creek. It was packed because it's her neighborhood where she lives, Mm -hmm. literally, very close by. And um, Breakwater Books from downtown Guilford, the bookstore in downtown Guilford was there selling copies of her books, which was great. They had a big raffle, which I had never seen before at an event like this, and they gave away three copies of the audiobook. Oh, that's great. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. see them do that usually book the the book is given away not the audio and i thought that was really cool it is cool yeah who do you remember who read well you didn't listen to the audio Mm -hmm. i wonder who reads it no i i saw it and because i had it and Mm -hmm. actually ended up getting the book at the same time and so i didn't listen it was an actress but not an actress whose name i Mm recognize but when i read her little bio but i don't remember her name i'm sorry oh no that's okay i was just curious um, and she was, you know, she's got this wonderful voice. She, you could just listen to her talk Amy forever. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, not the audio person, yeah. sorry. And so she she really talked about a lot about some of the things I just said when I was talking about the book, that it was interesting to investigate the 30-year relationship that these two women had, and um, including, you know, that Eleanor had children with the president, mm-hmm. you know, and so she was a mother and had this other life as well. And um, at the end of, I think she Eleanor had already passed away, when Lorena was talking to her daughter, Anne, Eleanor's daughter, Anne, mm-hmm. um, she said that, that some of the letters, she destroyed some of the letters because, as Lorena said to Anne, your mother wasn't always discreet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so there might have been some, you know... More explicit. Little, yes, some explicit <laughs> love letters there. But, yeah. um, but you know, one of the things I didn't mention when I was talking about the book and that Amy Bloom really talked about is that Lorena Hickok had a very difficult and traumatic childhood, and the book starts out with her childhood. And, um, you know, she was raped by her father after her mother had just died mm. and ends up being, you know, given to a local family to, to take care of their children. And she was still a child herself, you know, just a, a young teenager, and eventually leaves to go live with her aunt, I want to say maybe in Chicago. Mm. And she had been more in the I can't remember if it was Kansas. I'm sorry, I can't remember that part where she had was born. But um, but she said there are some gaps where you don't know what happened. And so part of one of my questions was why did she not just write a nonfiction book? Why did she write what do you call it a historical fiction? Mm-hmm. And she said part of it was so she could have fun filling in the gap. Lorena, there's a whole section where she joins the traveling circus, mm-hmm. you know, as part of her, you know, like what did happen to yeah. her during that time because nobody really knows. Interesting. And she ends up becoming a journalist, and that's how she and Eleanor meet, because she's given the task of literally moving into the White House. She moves into the White House to be the person who reports on Eleanor and her life as wow. the First Lady. So um, so she, she herself had a very interesting life and was largely cut out of history, according to Amy Bloom, literally cut out. Like, there are pictures of her around the Christmas tree in the White House with everyone that she is cut out of. Jeez, wow. <laughs> so, so she wanted to give her voice, which she did really well in this book, mm-hmm. I think. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Reclaiming history. Yes. Putting somebody and their voice right back mm-hmm. at the center where mm-hmm. they belong. Yeah. And I guess she was also a war correspondent at mm. times. And I think towards the end of her life, I want to say, was it the Vietnam War, maybe? I can't remember, but there was a war that we were entering, but she was sad that she was at that point too old to kind of like go out and okay. be a part of it yeah. and really report as she had historically. Mm-hmm. So, so very interesting woman, very interesting relationship. And again, I loved the book. And if you get a chance, Amy Bloom's just starting out on her book tour. If she comes near you, I highly recommend Very cool. you get a chance to see her. All right, well, I went on a Biblio adventure too. Um, I could report back about the Witness Stones book group. In yeah. the last episode, I talked about um, going to their first book group, which was to discuss Octavia Butler's Kindred. It, they had a great turnout. Um, I would say there were probably over 50 people there. Wow. Um, all ages from high schoolers, just a couple high schoolers, to then folks probably 70s, 80s, um, and a lot of middle-aged people in between. Uh, I took some notes here and there, and, and one of the things that I was struck by it, during the conversation, which I didn't realize when I was reading the book, um, Kindred, 
is that uh, Dana, the main character, mm-hmm. who is the African-American woman living in 1976 L.A., is transported against her will with no choice of her own to the past. Mm-hmm. And so she's much like the slaves, had no choice. Mm. There is no choice in her life. There is no logic to what happened when, which is what it was like for the slaves. They, you know, we talked about the community that they developed and they had a community, but there was no, there was no safety. Mm-hmm. There was no permanence. There was no logic to when that community would be affected by the decisions of the slave owners. So that was a really interesting connection I totally didn't get when I was reading. Out of control. Things were out of control. Yeah, completely. Yeah, she had no choice and there was no logic. Um, I got some different takes on the books. So it was this big room with 50 people. Mm -hmm. Um, Donna Daniels and Hazel Carby, who were the leaders, did a little bit of a presentation at the beginning about Octavia Butler and her writing and how she transformed sci-fi because she was an African-American woman writing in this very much kind of straight male white world. Right. And then they opened it up to some general discussion, but then we broke into small groups because they said when they saw how many people had registered for the event, they thought, wow, <laughs> you know, we yeah. need to do something. So yeah. it was kind of like that classroom setting. I think for those of you who've been in a classroom, they sometimes break the bigger group into smaller groups to discuss, which is what we did. There was... I think we did, broke into groups of five to seven people, and right. and then we went back to the big group to. to and did, was there a specific list of questions, or you just had a conversation just as that small group? Oh, that's a good question. I don't remember okay. if they had a specific question or not. I don't really think so because I think I started by saying I was, um, you know, her Dana's husband Kevin. I think we started just talking about him. So it, does, it yeah. sounds like you just had the discussion you wanted to have at your table, which I is I think cool. so, yeah. yeah. And, and other people brought up other things that they were interested mm-hmm. in and things that they were struck by. And I think like with every big group, there are sometimes a couple people who tend to talk a little right. bit. I wouldn't say necessarily too much, mm-hmm. but, you know, they don't give other people a time to think and pause and answer a mm-hmm. question. Um, and I think not that... Um, you know, we need to have book discussions where we behave like Quakers right. at a meeting. Um, right. But I think sometimes it's good to give people a pause Definitely. and let other people mm-hmm. speak their mind. Yeah. So, but it was good. And I, I look forward to the next one. They sent out a, a questionnaire to people about their, you know, what they thought about the book group and what they would like to do going forward. So <laughs> anyway, that was the, the Witness Stones book group. Cool. Their first, uh discussion so is it going to be quarterly or they didn't say okay they didn't say so that that, but they did the um they did that survey yeah i'd like to try to get to the next one Mm -hmm. i'm I'm curious to see what book they pick yeah yeah and i you know they didn't specify whether they would do just novels or some nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um but the focus of the witness stones project is dealing with enslaved peoples right so yeah but that can have a wide interpretation too exactly and it's not just a racial issue right so, yeah. yeah, although that's what I think we tend to think of in mm-hmm. America when we hear the word slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So awesome. another thing, this wasn't exactly a biblio adventure, but we did watch the movie October Sky, mm. which Laura and I have watched it a million times probably, but our friends who were visiting had never seen it. So um, we watched that. And that is based on the book by Homer Hickam called The Rocket Boys which was about his experience growing up in Colwood, West Virginia, during the Sputnik, when Sputnik first came to be, and his quest to get out of Colwood. 
He wasn't a jock. I think the only people who could get out of Colwood were the jocks who got a college scholarship. So on the kind of nudging of their teacher, these boys decide to enter a science fair to get a scholarship for college. That's, you know, the ultimate goal. And there, of course, no one from Colwood has ever won the county, the state fair, science, you know, project at all. But it's it's a wonderful movie. It's Jake Gyllenhaal's one of his first roles, and he's adorable. Okay, yeah. And all the the boys who are in the movie are all wonderful. Uh, it's a very heartwarming movie. So for those of you who might be looking for something that kind of deals with grow coming of age and science and math and you know that time period in, in America when huge change was coming, and the cinematography of the movie is beautiful because it's so. Here we have Sputnik going overhead as the coal miners are going down into the shaft. And there's a lot about steel and the steel industry. And if steel ever fails, America fails. And just how much our country has changed and the world has changed since that time period. But it's a beautiful film. And Laura and I even did a, we made a pilgrimage to Colwood. Really? West Virginia one year. Yeah. Um, Because she, she loves the movie so much. It came to her to, a time in her life where it really spoke to her. And she's read other books by Homer Hickam, too. But it was cool to, to go there because it is, it is deep in West Virginia and nothing but these curvy, hilly little roads to get to this town. And you just really think, like, God, what was it like to grow up there yeah. in the 40s and 50s? Mm-hmm. There's a scene where Homer, this is a spoiler, they he, he does get to go to Indianapolis for the big national science fair. And, you know, he's walking around the streets, and it's his first time in a city. In a big city. In a big like, city, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't even think they even show anybody having a TV set there mm. in that movie. So, mm. anyway, it's a good film. And the book itself I haven't read. Laura's read it. She prefers the movie, but the book, mm. the book is just a very different thing. It's so interesting. I remember when my kids were little, I was always looking for movies that, you know, none of us had heard of. But we used to do this movie night every Friday. We would, because I was at my wit's end, because it was the end of the work week. It was like, we're sitting on the couch watching a movie and eating pizza. Um, But it was always a challenge to find a movie, you know, that we didn't know about, but that was kid-friendly. And that's a great one. So thanks for bringing that up. Well, I should say kid-friendly on maybe like high school Mm -hmm. and above, because there is a tiny bit of violence where a man is beating up his son. So, and I don't know if there's sex. There's the hint of sex, but there's no sex. That's all so, good. Yeah. Sex is good. <laughs> <laughs> we should end on that note. <laughs> end of episode 42. Upcoming Johns. Yes. Well, we had a John that got canceled because of oh, the storm last yes, week. Yes, we did. And it has been rescheduled um, for April 19th. It's the Cozy Mystery Authors, um, hosted by our friend, the, our mystery man, John Valerie. Yes. So that'll be at April Bank 19th Books. at Bank Square Books and Mystic. Yeah. I'm sorry I talked over you. That's okay. Yeah. You just reiterated what I was saying. <laughs> Um, and then March 12th, we're toying with going together, but I don't know if it's going to happen for either of us, but hopefully to see Nathaniel Philbrick hosted by Bank Square Books, but at Mystic Congregational Church in mm-hmm. Mystic, uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Mystic, Connecticut, Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. that is Connecticut. Um, he has a new book out called Second Wind, which is different than his other books because I think it's a memoir mm-hmm. of his like coming Back to sailing or coming to sailing for the first coming time? Coming back to it, I okay. think, because I think he was a 
he got into sailing as a young guy. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think he won some sailing award in his 20s okay. or something. And this is him getting back into it. So different than his other... We've been to an event um, at the same place, I think. Yeah. But that was with his last book, which he writes a lot of historical... Yeah. The know. Whale Ship Essex. Yeah. And... God, what was the one... Oh, uh, what was that book that we saw? It was something Something about... Ambition. Valiant yeah. Ambition, I think that was the something last one. Like yeah, and Carol met us there, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and so. I'm hoping Carol might meet us at the Cozy Mystery. Totally. But there's competition on the night of the 12th. Uh-oh. Which I just found out. Chloe Benjamin, who wrote The Immortalists, is going to be at RJ's right in Madison. Oh, wow. So, I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay, yeah, and see, I'm going to be... My mom's coming in for a visit, and I'm her flight leaves Monday at like five or something like that. So for yeah. me, it's going to depend on traffic on what I get to do or not do. Don't do yeah, yeah. Well, I wish we could. This is like every once in a while. Actually, more than every once in a while, I wish I could split myself into two people. Yeah. <laughs> Or be like, do you have that one of those little time traveler things like Hermione has and right. Harry Potter? Yes, I would love that. I'm trying to look up this Nathaniel Philbrick. Valiant Ambition. Okay. That's what you said. Okay. Valiant Ambition. You go, girl. <laughs> and it's George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution. Yeah. That was the Nathaniel Philbrick book. Cool. Nice. I'm, I have a, another upcoming jaunt. We're going to see a stage production of Murder on the Orient Express. Nice. Up on the Hartford stage, and I've, we've heard great things about it. How so fun. I'm looking forward to that. But we, the last time my mom visited, we went to see the movie Murder right. on the Orient Express, the new Kenneth Branagh. Um, so we thought it would be fun, now that she's yes. coming back for another visit, to go see it on stage. So we had friends who saw it, and they said even the costumes were magnificent. So I'm looking forward to, to that. And you didn't like the movie, right? Isn't no, I didn't movie? like that. Yeah, so the hopefully the play will be... I just thought it took itself way too seriously, yeah. and I didn't like all the special effects and whatnot. I prefer the the first movie from the 70s. So hopefully this play will redeem itself, because yeah. it's a cool story. So what about upcoming read? Well, or read <laughs> Oh my god. You know, I've been seeing people on the internet on the internet. <laughs> I've been seeing people. You know, uh, people on social media have been talking about like how many books they own that they haven't read and <laughs> and I know most of the books that I own I haven't read cuz usually like these days when I read a book, I'm I'm usually sending it to somebody or donating it mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. I really don't keep as many books anymore cuz I am trying to slowly continue to weed. Um so anyway, what was my point? I don't know. What I have you, a million your, and a half. Oh, so you don't know what you're. <laughs> well, I'm just <laughs> laughing as we sit here. We're in Jim's house, and I mean, I've talked about you know how my heart went towards Jim right away because he started talking about books, and we're sitting here, and he has books everywhere, everywhere, like literally on the like the arm rest is that what you call it of um, his couch, couch yeah. that we sit on all the time stacks of books you know and okay. last night at about 11 o'clock he was like i which was sunday night you know i didn't get any reading done this weekend and that's part of the problem really like i feel like we beat ourselves up about all the books we have but mm-hmm. part of it is if we all just got more time to read yeah. we would solve that problem totally <laughs> Because it has nothing to do with the fact that we keep buying books. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But I do have two in mind. Okay. Me. Let me okay. let me just say the next two 
or two coming up. Well, one is The Dog Healers. Oh, yeah. By Mark Winnick, mm-hmm. who we are actually going to have an interview with. Right. If I can say that ahead of time. Yes. Yeah. He's a local author, and it was actually a friend of mine who had first said, have you seen The Dog Healers or heard about it? And so she told me about it, and then we got an email from their publicist. Right. And so here we go. So that'll be an upcoming read. And then another one that came in the mail I was so excited about is The Broken Girls by mm-hmm. Simon St. James. This one's coming out later in the Mar- in March, March 20th, from Berkeley. And it is about a girls' boarding school in Vermont, I think in the 40s or 50s. And the place is supposed to be haunted, one mm. of the halls, you know, where they live. It's supposed to be haunted. So it has this kind of gothic element but then it comes forward into time where one of the girls is a reporter whose sister had died mm. on campus or something like that. So it's I wanted to read it when it first came in. Like I was like, oh, I just want to dump everything yeah. else. But I couldn't because I had other commitments. And you know how that is. Like I want to dump this book for that book. And oh, then you yeah. end up loving all of them exactly. or most of them. So anyway, The Broken Girls, um, I've been just... Really looking forward to getting into that one. Oh, that's exciting. Um, and it is a novel. Okay. I realize I made it sound like it could have been potentially nonfiction, maybe. I don't know. No, I was thinking novel, but yeah, you're okay. right. It could yeah. have sounded that way. I just have one on my upcoming or so, I think. We'll see what happens in the next two weeks. But it's called Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And I just saw this at the library, and it um, was blurbed by a lot of interesting people, and I happened to be having one of those days where I was stressing about a million things and um, I thought, you know, I need to read some nonfiction. I usually start the year with a big, you know, nonfiction read that's kind of a shot in the arm Mm -hmm. and I didn't do that yet this year. I I read that one about fear that was really good, but it was really short. Mm -hmm. So, and this one's not a big book, but... um, I'm looking forward to digging into it, so cool. more to come. Yeah. I don't know much about it. I think he has written some other books, but... Oh, did I say I it's by Scott Stable? Stable? I don't know if I'm making his name fancy. S-T-A-B-I-L-E. Hmm. Yeah. Big love. So, all right. Well, yeah. I also wanted to read Code Girls for March, yeah. since it's Women's History Month. Oh, yeah. And that was one I had started re- listening to the audio. Right. And I realized, like, oh, this is one I need to read and have okay. on my hand. So I did buy the book, too. So I'm going to... And who's that by that. again? Do you remember? Mundy, I think it was. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure. Liza Mundy. Mundy, yeah. okay, yeah. Code Girls, the untold story of the American women code breakers who helped win World War II. Yeah. And okay. I saw, you know, I'm sorry I don't remember who reviewed a book, another book about spies. And um, she had also read Code Girls and kind of called out that author in the review for not mentioning the significant contribution that women made to the Code Breakers. It was a narrative of one person kind of being the the lone genius kind of narrative Mm -hmm. type story, which I think, you know, that's another thing about looking at his uh, nonfiction being written with a fictional with fictional techniques is representing history as that lone genius mm. who's doing everything. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice story, but it's more mythology than actual mm. history, I think. That's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway, so those are all the upcoming reads. Great. So, 
So, should we talk about Morris? Sure. Maurice? Let's dig into our I, I have to, Let's say, to start, I just want to say, or we want to say, <laughs> thank you to everybody who's participated. We yes. had a really nice um, Goodreads chat going along in our Goodreads group. And um, lots of people commented, including Thomas, yeah, from, from the readers. The readers. Mm-hmm. And we should say that we're reading this book largely because we had put something out on our Goodreads group saying to people, what do you think should be the next read-along? And he's the one that started this idea of reading Morris mm-hmm. by Forster. And, and a lot, of people, a lot yeah. of people said, yeah, I'd like to read that one. And yeah. it's been on our radar. And yeah, yeah. so... Thank you for that. Yeah, and he piped in quite a bit with some helpful conversation on the Goodreads group, and um, we got some emails, so thank you, everybody. And and I have to laugh, because one of our listeners, Lisa, I think this was on Facebook, said, you know, even now that I'm reading the book, I can't say Morris as I'm reading (laughs) it. And I had the exact same problem, Lisa, so I just kept saying to myself, like, I just have to go with Maurice, because it's too disturbing to try to keep saying Morris in my head. (laughs) Well, I know that the mom called him Maury. Yes. But I thought it could be Maury. But Maury. Yeah. <laughs> Morris. <laughs> Morris, I just think of the Morris the cat. Oh, I didn't even think about it. Well, I, I wanted if you... Um, Oops. Oh, I thought... I, there's a little passage I marked that said read. Okay. And I think it wasn't because what it said was earth shattering. I just felt like it was a good example of what Forrester's writing style was like. So would you mind indulging me for one little paragraph? Please. And their love scene drew out, having the inestimable gain of a new language. No tradition overawed the boys. No convention settled what was poetic, what absurd. They were concerned with a passion that few English minds have admitted, and so created untrammeled. Something of exquisite beauty arose in the mind of each at last. Something unforgettable and eternal but built of the humblest scraps of speech and from the simplest emotions. I say, will you kiss me? asked Morris when the sparrows woke in the eaves above them and fired in the woods, the ring doves began to coo. Clive shook his head and smiling they parted, having established perfection in their lives at all events for a time. Nice. I thought that was a a nice little passage. Of course, more is to come because that was only in the... uh, I think page 93 in my copy of the book. Okay. So other things happen with Morris and Clive after that. But So the story, and this is going to be a spoiler-rich conversation. For those of you who haven't read it yet, just be warned. Um, it's about a young guy who is living in the suburbs of London. Uh, Forster started writing it in 1913. So um, it's apparently set around that time. Mm-hmm. Although they're not very many automobiles, but they, they are mentioned, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So um, so Morris goes off to college. He's one of those boys who is of the middle class, upper middle class. And, and one of the things that I like that um, Forrester talks about, he says, um, Morris was stepping into the niche. The niche, would you niche. say? Mm-hmm. Morris was stepping into the niche that England had prepared for him. And so it's, he talks so much about the social expectations and the social setup for the different classes and the different genders and everything. And, and I remember I, I, I was struck by that because I thought, you know, as a young person reading this book, I would have been a little bit envious of that, mm. that he had all of this waiting for him. Mm-hmm. Now, as you know, a middle-aged person, it kind of makes me shudder because right. I know how hard it is to break out of 
those expectations that society and family sets mm-hmm. up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, he goes off to college and he meets Clive, who is of the landed gentry mm-hmm. of at least a couple generations. He's not, I think, four generations back. So he's more the intellectual. And they fall in love and things. Do you want to talk about no, that? Do, go they, ahead. You're doing it kind of works out, it kind of doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's a big struggle. And then um, during Morris's year of hell, as he calls it, he does fall in love with another man who happens to be a groundskeeper of Clive's estate. So there's a different class issue. So, you know, there's Clive, who is landed gentry, a gentleman. Morris, who is, you know, his his grandfather, I think, made the money. So more of the... And I could be getting this wrong. I'm not well-versed in Mm -hmm. English, like, Mm -hmm. social class. But, you know, of the, you know, storekeeper or owner level, lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. He's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, Scudder, who Mm -hmm. is a groundskeeper Mm -hmm. from the lower classes. So their story ends with hope, which would have been shocking had this book been published back then because... Any book with a slight hint of a gay character, they they need to die or be murdered. Some ill befalls them. You know, they need to be married and have offspring, and then everything would be okay. Right. (laughs) So, Which which is what Clive goes on to do. I mean, we should say that Morris and Clive start a relationship, and then Clive chooses, I'm using Mm -hmm. air quotes, Mm -hmm. you know, to go have a relationship and get married with a woman. Yeah. Which is, you know... Some so there was much discussion on our Goodreads page about whether that was his choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other words, he wanted to be with a woman, or whether it was societal pressure, which yeah. is what I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was necessarily bisexual by choice. I mean, I think that's a complicated idea. Yeah. Maybe he was, and maybe he was happily married. But mm-hmm. you know, I feel like he made the choice to live the life of expectation. Um, from his family. See, and I thought differently. Okay. I thought that he totally is bisexual mm. and that he made the choice to take the easier path in life. Mm. Easier, in quotes, I suppose. No path in life is... But some are easier than mm. others. And oh, I yeah. I mean, I knew... I've known people in my life mm-hmm. who've technically been bisexual who chose to be with the opposite sex because life would be easier mm-hmm. professionally, personally, in the family... And as a young person, I really was annoyed by that. And I just thought they were sellouts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I think, again, you know, with age comes so much more experience and perspective. I could see how if you were more, you know, you talk about like a, so a continuum, the sexuality continuum, you know, where some people are firmly homosexual and some people are firmly heterosexual and then everything in between. And so like if you're more towards the middle, you can make choices. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're at the ends, either end, you're not even going to think about it. If you're firmly heterosexual, you, you know, now if you're firmly homosexual, you might struggle like Morris did, mm-hmm. but he was totally on that opposite end of the spectrum and couldn't like being with a woman just wasn't an option for his. Right. He couldn't <laughs> make the choice that Clive made. Right. And he even tried to go to seek a doctor to, be healed or fixed, you know. Yeah. And it didn't, he, it didn't work. He did. He, he saw a doctor and then he saw a hypnotist. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to send a, 
I wanted to read a, a note, uh, a section about that. But first, I just actually opened to this page where Clive comes to the realization about, and he actually uses the word happy normal people. So he'd been ill with a bad fever and everything, and he's being nursed by a woman who Morris tries to send away. He tries to send away the nurse, and I don't think that that didn't really happen. I think the nurse ended up coming back, didn't she? Yeah, well, Morris wanted to care for Clive because yeah. he loved him, yes. and he wanted to care for him just like we would care for a partner. Exactly, yeah. You know? So, um, But then when Clive is kind of coming over this, you know, he says how happy normal people made their lives. How little had he existed for 24 years. He chatted to his nurse. He felt his, he felt her his forever. You know, so it's just kind of going on that, like he's seeing life in a different way. And you almost get the sense that, you know, here Clive was this young man of wealth and ease who'd been studying the classics his whole life. And there's a lot of stuff in here about the classics and, Greek life and the acceptance of homosexuality in Greek life or, you know, love between men, mm -hmm. which was also very much a class thing back mm -hmm. then. Um, but that, you know, he has this awakening as a younger man at the point where it is time for him to start getting married and, and doing all those societal things. So I don't know. I kind of felt like that was a sign that that was an indication that it was he was realizing he had a choice. It's true because he did discuss the idea of just women and womanhood and mm -hmm. what it's like to be around a woman and what a woman can do for a man. Mm -hmm. And so he definitely had that conversation with himself. My interpretation of it wasn't so much on a sexual level. It mm -hmm. was more on a kind of like practical, what could your life look like if you decided to live with a woman? Yeah. And that's, but you know, maybe that was just me reading into things in a different, with mm -hmm. a different interpretation. Yeah. Well, see, and that's a, a good point too. Cause like, I don't, I don't really think you can separate sexuality from identity mm -hmm. in this way. Like, I think that's one of the problems I have with, um, how a lot of heterosexual people, sexualize homosexual relationships. And I realize I'm saying the word homosexual. I think it's an outdated term. I'm just using it for shorthand because mm -hmm. people know. Um, but I think they they sexualize it mm -hmm. instead of looking at it as a love relationship right. that is about people mm -hmm. and how people are, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's a lot of the struggle of the decision. If you remove the sexuality part of it, if you're deciding, you know, the path you're going to take... I do think, and I still think this is a whole other can of worms, which did come up on our Goodreads page, but, you know, I still think the decision is hard today. The, mm -hmm. the young people like to think, you know, we've made great strides. I get caught up in that sometimes, like, all right, we've got gay marriage. Can't we move on to mm -hmm. hungry kids? You know, it's like, no, we can't because it's not safe as we're seeing now in the administration we have now, you know, that it's still at threat, you know, living safely in any kind of relationship that you want to live in and so I do think that there sometimes is just the practical choice that people make that's outside of sexuality mm -hmm. and that's I do think that's how I interpreted Clive's choice mm -hmm. see okay maybe I'm just getting hung up on the language you're using because I don't okay. think it can be outside sexuality but I see well, what you're saying I don't think I it's think. I don't think it's um 
Ooh, now I can get into dangerous terms. I was going to okay. use the term healthy. I don't we think it's a healthy edit. choice because I don't think you can live without being in touch with your sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's problematic. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I think when he, I interpreted those scenes of him thinking about women and what it would be like to live with a woman is not sexual in nature so mm-hmm. much as, you know, lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. It's a, a choice to live differently. Happy, normal people. Because mm-hmm. that is what's considered normal totally. Right. Yeah. And I love, it made me think of Jeanette Witterson's biography or memoir why be happy when you could be normal Mm -hmm. Mm because and that's that was a really i mean because she's a lesbian she's the one who wrote oranges are not the only fruit and why be happy when you can be normal is from a conversation she had with her adoptive mom when she the mom is upset that she's come out and all this and she's like why why? And she's like, because I want to be happy. And she's like, well, why be happy when you could be normal? Mm-hmm. And and it really made me think about that when I saw this line. And it made me wonder if Witterson kind of got, I mean, obviously that came from a conversation with her mom, but the whole mm-hmm. happy, normal people. Yeah. Like it's yeah. intense and it's real. Yeah. It's and real. It's and real I have today. to say, you know, even the people I know and love, one of which is sitting across the table from me, you know, I think it's really brave because... I worry. I worry about the crazy. Oh, I shouldn't. Let's not put that. People who you know have feel very threatened by homosexuality mm-hmm. and will um, take their feeling of threat out on people around them yeah. in inappropriate ways. That still exists today. You know, absolutely. I mean, and, people. I mean, in all different levels. Right. You know, people who are just. Did you not get their promotion right. because you're out? Mm-hmm. You know, did you? Uh, there's so many, and and it's sometimes as a gay person who's out, you sometimes wonder, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. it's just still and there. just as people can with other, you know, facets of life, you know, is it because I'm a woman? Is it because mm-hmm. you know because I'm black I'm, or Hispanic or you know Jewish or whatever mm-hmm. it is? But I just think that it's there is that whole perception of you know what marriage should look like and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff that's frightening to me as a person who has a lot of, you know, gay friends. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, that's getting off kind of on a long yeah. tangent. But I, I, so to me, when I listened to Clive, not listened, I read it, when I was reading, you know, Clive's lo- life and Clive's choices, I got, you know, the struggle. Mm-hmm. But also then it's, to me, it's the parallel is, is, Morris's struggle also loving this man Clive who chooses to make a different decision and not choose Morris Mm -hmm. but then Morris is having his own internal battle of you know can I do what Clive did essentially and not be who I am yeah and he chose no right not easily exactly he really tried and I you know I mean it's the same today I I do see people who've made choices to be more conventional Mm -hmm. and I hope they're happy I I don't think some of them are Mm -hmm. you know but yeah. I think being human is really hard. <laughs> that is very well said. Um, well, yeah, and then, I mean, even when Morris and Scudder, who's the man he starts to have a relationship with towards the, um, I think they meet in the, it, the book is separated into four parts, which I thought was really well done also. So the first part is Morris and his youth and discovering him, himself as a homosexual person. The second part is Morris and Clive falling in love and, um, Clive disavowing his homosexuality and there's also this little thing that happens where Clive 
and Ada, Morris's sister, have a moment, yeah. which I was like, holy mother of God. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't come to pass. I mean, Clive doesn't end up marrying Morris's sister. And then part three, Morris is sad. He's suicidal. Um, Clive does marry a woman whose name I think is Anna. Is that right? Do I, I don't remember. Right? And then, and that's when Morris tries to go to a doctor to get fixed. I'm using air quotes. And then part four is where Scudder enters Morris's life. But even when they have these lovely romantic moments together, mm-hmm. you know, Scudder is scurrying out the window down a ladder because it's not like they're, you know, out in the open with their right. Well, and there's also the class issue, right. which is horrendous back then Mm. um and the only thing i could equate to that and while it resonated with me i I should say um obviously in america in this day and age the class distinctions aren't that intense although i know they're there but it made me think of when i was in the marines Mm. and fraternization between the ranks is not allowed but when you're lgbtq in the military those that fraternization thing kind of goes out the window mm. because you tend to find each other. So like in my group of friends, and this was pre don't ask, don't tell, we had everybody in our group from a private first class up into a major. Mm. And so like we were, and it was a, a dicey time because mm. if you got found out, you got into obviously a lot of trouble, including mm. a bad conduct discharge. Um, but it made me feel like that, that, you couldn't be seen talking to somebody in an inter- in a friendly way mm-hmm. if they were from a different class, and so mm-hmm. it just made me think about that as yeah. in, in different ranks. And mm-hmm. I'm, I imagine that's still the same today. Those groups, even though you know, don't ask, don't tell, has gone by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that just yeah. made me think about that. But you you mentioned that part with uh, the sister Ada. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing, too, when Clive is seeing her lips and her mouth, that they're just like Morris's. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's creepy. Like, is he going to marry her yes. because she yeah. looks kind of like him? Yeah. But then on reflection, I think, like, was that another moment of him kind of realizing he's bisexual? Mm. That these are still eyes and lips, just like his, mm-hmm. you know? And so maybe for him, it's not so much... The, the physical body. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. It's so I fascinating. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I love the book. And it was hard to read, I have mm-hmm. to say. Like, it is a shorter book. Mm-hmm. Just, what, over 200 pages? Mm-hmm. But it was, it was a, I wouldn't say a slog. But whenever I had reading time, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I get to read Mar- Morris now. Yeah. I didn't feel yeah. that way about it. Was it was hard. I thought it was hard. And a lot of people on the um, Goodreads conversation said they felt it was very sad. Mm-hmm. And I did think it was sad. I mean, yeah. I don't think I don't feel like I got mired in the sad because I was interested to see where the story went. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. But it is sad. I mean, anytime people have an internal struggle like Morris had, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, being human is hard. Yeah. And um, I mean, I also think it's hard when you love someone to keep coming in contact with them, which yes. is another thing that happened to him. And you come in contact. You know, Morris would come in contact with Clive, and here Clive is living this other life. And, mm-hmm. Morris is still in love with him, and yeah. that's really hard. It's yeah. not like just because, you know, one person makes a decision doesn't mean that your love for them goes away. Mm-hmm. So um, complicated. There was also something that people raised on Goodreads that there was a hint that Clive had had a relationship with Scudder also. I know, yeah. I missed that. Yeah. I didn't hear, I mean, I didn't read that. Mm-hmm. 
There was a line in there towards the end. I don't know if it was when they were, but it was implied that Scudder knew mm-hmm. about about Clive and maybe something happened. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then too with that pastor or the, the whoever he is, not mm-hmm. a pastor, but um, the religious guy mm-hmm. who seems a little bit. Um, Ever-present? Yeah, ever-present. Like, And I just thought, is he gay? Is he trying to monitor things? Or is he one of those, you know, kind of homophobes who is always on the lookout? That's how I interpreted it. Yeah. But then when someone on the Goodreads page said, hey, was he, you know, hoping to get some? Mm -hmm. That is not what they said. That was my interpretation. (laughs) Sure. Um, Like, Like, oh, that hadn't occurred to me. I thought he was, like, lurking in a scary way to me. But that was just my interpretation of it. Uh You know? Yeah, or if he was just that authority, right? That religious authority who would ruin their lives, and right. that's the thing too. Like, I mean, I, yes, being outed these days can potentially ruin lives. I mean, certainly, I'm just thinking about America. I know it's very different in other parts of the world where gay and lesbians are murdered mm-hmm. and killed and executed, actually, by mm-hmm. their country. But that in England at this time, you could be jailed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was just not too long after Oscar Wilde's situation, mm. and your life would be ruined if somebody outed you. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, Morris, there were parts of the book, too, where he, you know, his mother was church-going, his family was church-going, and he turned his back on going to the church. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, there was that, you know, that's why, to me, that, that religious figure represented a struggle and not something, you know, the potential hookup or something. Yeah. You know, I didn't see it that way at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a scary figure of, yeah, Yeah. of consequence. Right, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, and I thought the whole religious thing, too, like, I I didn't so much equate that. I mean, I I understand that that was part of their their struggle with their homosexuality, the religious aspect, but it's also such a, that that, uh, college experience in some ways when people start, or even as a, a young person, around that age, you just start questioning things that you've mm-hmm. always done with your family. Yeah. And I thought the religious aspect, that was part of it. That was part of their growing up and coming of age and making their own choices for mm-hmm. themselves. And and I guess if anything about Clive, I just feel like, you know, he was so passionate about the classics. Mm-hmm. And I really was thinking that he was going to become a professor or something. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. He goes back to his home he becomes the politician that his mom wants him to be, mm-hmm. representing their interests. And and I just kind of felt like he, I hate to say the word sellout because mm-hmm. it sounds like I'm, you know, 17. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I kind of felt like he's, there he is. He's going to just be living that life mm-hmm. that England rolled mm-hmm. out for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just thought, how sad. Because there's another point, too. Oh, I wish I marked it down a little bit better because... The whole middle class thing. Oh, yeah, this is the, the part where um, the, kind of a talking about middle class. Um, the clientele of Hill and Hall was drawn from the middle middle classes whose highest desire seems shelter, continuous shelter, not a lair in the darkness to be reached against fear, but shelter everywhere and always until the existence of earth and sky is forgotten shelter from poverty and from disease and violence and impoliteness, and consequently from joy. God slipped this retribution in. He saw from their faces, as from the faces of his clerks and his partners, that they had never known real joy. Mm. And that, like, really hit me, too, Mm -hmm. because I kind of feel like that's the thing. Like, 
if you're always looking for the safety and the safe choice, like what does that do to your joy? Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. So I think about Clive. Mm-hmm. I don't see a joyous path for him. Right. I see a safe path and maybe a comfortable path. And, um, and I know, I don't think everybody had the afterword. Yeah. I had something called terminal note. Terminal note. Yeah. yeah. From um, Forrester who wrote that in his different revisions, he had an ending at one point where Kitty, one of the sisters, stumbles across these two woodcutters in the woods who were presumably Morris and Scudder, that they're out there in the woods right. living happily ever after, but he cut that yeah. and kind of left it up to the reader's imagination what could possibly happen. And I think, though, that he also does say in the terminal note, but of course he had to have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And it is happy, but it's unclear. Unclear, yeah. And so isn't there fan fiction and such where people write about yes, Scudder yeah. and Morris and their lives yeah. after? Thomas after? found some novel, and yeah. I, I didn't write down the, the um, author's name, but somebody wrote a novel, a sequel, on what happens with Morris and Scudder. Right, right. And I think, um, you know, we're going to watch the movie, right? Yes, we're, we're going to watch, watch the, movie. the movie. And I think that there is a little bit of um, a, a sense of maybe what happens with them. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll I feel see. like I read yeah. some where someone said that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the only other point I, or comment I wanted to make was that um, it, it, parts of the book also really made me think of The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall, mm. which is one of the, the first lesbian novels that was published. It came out in 1928. Mm. And just that theme of loneliness that is in this book mm-hmm. um, was also obviously in The Well of Loneliness, hence the title, which is a depressing novel, but one that I've thought about revisiting because it's been decades since I've mm-hmm. read it. But one of, the, uh, one of the points in the book, it's when he's seeing the doctor, and he's trying to get help from the doctor. The doctor basically says, uh, the doctor represents science. So you have religion, you have science, and then you even have new age with the guy who's doing the hypnotism. And at one point, Morris is saying to him, he's like, I want advice, you know, I I need help. And the doctor's saying like, no, we're not going to discuss it. You know, the worst thing I could do is that we talk about this. Mm. <laughs> and he said, um, but I want advice. And the doctor says, you know, it's rubbish. And Morris says, it's not rubbish to me, but my life. Mm. And I think that's the desperation of anybody. I mean, obviously of him and of the lot of, of homosexuals at this time and period. It's like, it's my life. Right. Like, this is not rubbish. It's yeah. not bullshit. It's, this is a human life we're talking about. And so then when you think about all the human lives that have gone through this, mm-hmm. either with this issue or with race or gender, it's just it's soul crushing to yeah. think about that. Well, and I think it's also coupled with a lot of times it's not just like it's also poo-pooed of like just make a different choice like as if it is just that simple to just make a different choice and it's not right you know exactly yeah Yeah. and but what i guess uh what i was thinking about too is bringing up that scene was the doctor doesn't seem surprised Mm -hmm. by this at all and then the 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 man who was doing the hypnotism was even bored with Mm, it right because it's not interesting because he probably saw X amount of young guys coming in saying, can you help me? Right. And, 
you know, people who are in that line of work, they're interested in the new and in the different. Mm, and yeah. so if they're seeing the same pattern, so you just think like how many people throughout history mm-hmm. just have been live joy, joyless lives yeah. because of, you know, social conventions and whatnot. Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, the good, I would say that good happy note maybe that we can say is in this day and age, there are some different choices. I mean, for example, if you back in this time that Forrester writes about, you couldn't get into um, a homosexual relationship and have children, for example. Mm-hmm. Now you can, you know, right. so there is some wonderful progress that, you know, informs your decision differently. Oh, huge right? progress. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the, there, as you pointed out, there are still dangers, but there's huge progress. And I remember talking with people not even five years ago who would, or a little bit older than I am, and they would say gay marriage is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I said it will. Like mm-hmm. I had great hope because I kind of feel like, you know, especially once the military starts doing stuff and when they accepted gays and lesbians and trans, like they're the biggest employer right. in America mm-hmm. and their government. Mm-hmm. So when they start making changes, I think the rest of society eventually tries to come in line anyway. Right. So, yeah. 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 Great progress. And we yes. just got to keep it going. And I think right. that's the thing. Like we, I think we've learned a lot from recent events in American political life is that we can't, we can't rest. Yeah. You know, we always have to be vigilant and, and looking for yeah. problems. Yes. Problems when it comes to people threatening democracy and equality. Amen, sister. You go, girl. Right on. <laughs> Well, and um, the, I think the only thing we didn't say that's probably important to also say, which we probably should have said at the beginning, is he wrote this in 13, but it wasn't published till 1970, right? Yeah, after he died. Right. Yeah, yeah. So after he died. And he wrote this, back. he wrote the afterward or whatever, the terminal note in 1960, right. I think. Yeah. September 1960 is when he wrote it. And he talks about Edward Carpenter and the work that he was doing. With um, the members of parliament and the Wolfden recommendations about backing off mm. on um, on gays and allowing them in society, or you know, not necessarily embracing them, but not persecuting them, and that did pass. Forrester didn't think it would, and it did mm. pass. However, the man who wrote that. His son was later blackmailed into becoming a Soviet spy mm. because he was gay. Oh gosh! Yeah. So. Really yeah. Wow. That would be an interesting to find out. An interesting thing to find out in terms of talk about blackmailing and spies and everything. Like I know you couldn't uh, get like top secret clearance in the old days if you were gay mm. because it was a way for people to blackmail, blackmail you. you. I wonder mm. about that. Mm. If that's still part of the background check and how mm. that's handled mm. in this day and age. to find out. Yeah. So if any listeners have contacts yeah. with the Secret Service or whoever decides the uh, top secret clearance. How do you work for the know. NSA? <laughs> Give us a call. <laughs> and one final comment, and then we're going to go watch the movie and come back. But um, our listener, Kate, who we love down in New York, did say that um, she gave us, she sent us a lovely email with a lot of information about her thoughts, but she said that um, her experience reading it was influenced by a different book that she recently read called The World Broken Two, mm. Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, E.M. Forrester, and The Year That Changed Literature by Bill Goldstein. 
And she said he's a local um, on NBC uh, down in New York City. He does a book. He's a book critic. Um, but what she said is that he, Goldstein wrote, frankly, that Morris had been written in 13, 14, 1913 and 14, but naively, um, she thought it had been published then. Kate did. Oh, okay. So she says, um, Forrester's mother was domineering and lived a very long life until Forrester was maybe into his 70s, so his sexuality was a hidden part of his life, which I thought was interesting. And she said that the mother... Reads almost like a horrible trope for a gay son. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, thank you, Kate. I mean, it's it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to read that book and learn more about Forrester as a person. Mm-hmm. Because another person on the Goodreads page said she thought this was semi autobiographical. Right. And I think it definitely was. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You would think so. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I didn't look. There were a lot of footnotes in my edition. I I read the Penguin Classics edition. And it had footnotes, and I, mm. I looked at some of them, mm-hmm. and I know that one character, the upperclassman who is gay, who he, Morris goes to his room, mm-hmm. and that's where he first meets Clive, barring records. Mm-hmm. That man is based on a famous historian oh. who Forrester knew at Cambridge. Hmm. Cambridge, right? Yeah. Yeah. So interesting wow. stuff. We could keep talking we about could. this book, but I guess we should stop. Well, <laughs> and the world broken too. You know who that comes from? No, Willa Cather. No way. Yeah, yep. So why is she in the book? Oh, you know what? He he. Ha- I've looked at that book, and he has a, just a line or two. He kind of dismisses Cather as being not a modernist. Mm. So hmm. yeah, okay. But he uses her line and her concept that <laughs> the world broken too. <laughs> And it, that is dealing with the changes that happened because of World War One, Okay. And how extreme society around the globe really changed, which is something that Forrester talks about, too, is that, I don't remember where I read it, it must have been in that afternote or something, where this novel in the 1960s wouldn't have been as possible to write because England had changed so, changed yeah. so radically. There weren't forests for these guys to slip off into to live a life being you know, tree cutters. Right. Because everything had been so rapidly industrialized, which is something to think about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're off to watch the movie. Yeah. All right, so we just watched the movie, Morris, or Maurice. We're back. (laughs) Had a little lunch. A lunch. Thank you for the lunch, Jim. He he fed us, even though he doesn't know it yet. (laughs) And um, the the for those of you who don't know, the movie stars a very young Hugh Grant. We were trying to figure out how young. I want to say maybe nineteen. That's mm-hmm. how he looked very baby faced. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I didn't really recognize any of the. There was one other actor I recognized, but I don't know his name. And then um, F. Ben Murray. Kingsley. Oh, oh, right. What? Yeah, Ben. I was going to say F. Murray Abraham. Oh. <laughs> ben Kingsley. Sorry, was it yeah. Ben Kingsley or? It F- was Ben Kingsley. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who's F. Murray Abraham? That just gave my mind. But I was wondering, the guy who played Clive, he reminded me of the guy who's in The Princess Bride. But I don't know if that was him or not. Yeah, You know, know. we could get up off our butts and go look at the movie (laughs) box, but apparently we're not going (laughs) to. So, anyway, so, reactions? Um... I didn't love it. Yeah. I didn't love it, but, but but Chris and I have had little sidebars, I have to say, as we were fixing lunch and everything, and then we said, oh, stop talking about it. We have to talk about it while yes. we're recording. <laughs> um, 
You know, it was filmed in 87. The book was published in 71. We think we think 71, yeah. 71. The the film was 87. It was Merchant and Ivory. Very slow, I felt like. Um, but very slow, kind of low budget. Filming, yeah. You know? But yet the costumes were beautiful. Totally, yeah. The yeah. costumes and the locations were great. It just had that, that quality of, of being almost like a stage set recording, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't. It was, you know, out in the world. But there was just something about the cinematography that made it seem low budget. Well, I think things are digital now and just look different. I think maybe that's part of it. It was filmed back in the day. In I don't know. Our, in our I, don't know. I just saw Casablanca, too, and that looked different. Okay, better. No. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Story, as far as the story goes, I kind of liked how they, ha- I, I like the flow of the movie. It just mm-hmm. could have been faster mm-hmm. for me. I think there was too much pausing and looking. Like they could have had three seconds of pausing and looking instead of 12 seconds right. in some cases. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought that they did a good job. I mean, when I've just recently literally closed the cover of book and watched the movie, I always spend time thinking like would I be understanding this if I hadn't read the book mm-hmm. you know and, and what's different and was that in the book and so sometimes I think I'm a little distracted by that whole yeah. thing you yeah. know um, but yeah I thought they handled the progression because as I said the book is told in four parts mm-hmm. and they kind of did that you yeah. know with the movie and they they literally would stop it and have a place marker, you know, like where the they were. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, then it would be a whole different scene from the book, you know, where now they're at Clive's house or, you and know. And he has a mustache. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so many yeah. years later. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I did. I, I appreciated that. And um, and then it clarified, too, that Morris was a, a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. I think I misspoke earlier and said he was a lawyer, but it's Clive was the one who became the lawyer, took the bar. And then went into politics. And went into, yeah. yeah. His, you know, like, think Downton Abbey, right? Mm-hmm. With the landed gentry and yeah, being involved in local politics and government and whatnot. So. Right. And what was interesting, what they did with the character of Riley, which we don't remember the book exactly, if he was made an example of. So there's this, he's the upperclassman guy who they borrow records from. He's a, he even has a title of some kind. I don't remember what his title is. But he gets set up in a bar and is caught for homosexual behavior and taken away in a paddy wagon and then put on trial. And made an example of. And made of. an example of. And that further freaks out Clive, who actually sneaks into the courtroom after Riley had called him and asked him for his support to be a character witness. And Clive says, it would really kind of ruin my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of see his... The fear, mm-hmm. and, and I thought the movie made him look like a coward, mm-hmm. but that is a judgment that yeah. is kind of a harsh judgment. I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you think it made him look like a coward, or do you think it made it just reiterate what the stakes were? I think it made it reiterate the stakes and why he chose, not why, but the, to reiterate the fact that Clive made a decision to not support his homosexual feelings, inclinations, his homosexual brotherhood, essentially. Because mm-hmm. I don't remember that in the book at all. I don't remember that either. So I yeah. feel like it was kind of giving place to the change in Clive's life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In um, the movie doesn't make him look very happy with his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't make it look like he is a happy bisexual. 
and makes right. it look like he's a gay guy who made a choice to be safe. Right. And there are times where the wife looks at him kind of either longingly or confusingly. I couldn't figure <laughs> out which, you know. You know, like there's a scene where you see him getting ready for bed and his butt cheeks are hanging out and she turns her head and looks at it and kind of looks away. Yeah. And um, then he climbs into bed and gives her a peck on the cheek and she's kind of laying there like, yeah, something they, else coming? I know. You know. Hopefully tonight's the night. Yeah, maybe we'll consummate our marriage. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> I added that one. <laughs> yeah, he just rolls over on his back. And, yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it also doesn't... Um, he does kind of seem happy-go-lucky, though, in a kind of hop, skip, and a jump kind of way. Climb. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily within the marriage, but just in his life. Yeah. Know? Well, he seems to be one of those people who... I don't know. Like I felt like he was using Morris after mm. a while. I felt like he was being a real... Prick. Just letting Morris be this kind of like skippy, mm-hmm. following him around. When mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, you're being a jerk. Yeah. You need to like speak up now and cut the cord. And then that whole illness happens and he goes off to Greece. And I guess the point being that he's making his decision then about which way he's going to go. Yeah. But he was insensitive. I mean, all along he keeps inviting Morris to his home mm-hmm. to spend time with his wife. Right. You know, and it's and like, then he's kissing his hand and he's like, right. But don't tell anybody. Right. Yeah. 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 It was sad. Yeah. Sad is the word for this book mm-hmm. and the movie. But you know, really beautifully written. I mean, the stakes of coming out. I thought that the book I thought portrayed that really well. Mm-hmm. And the movie did too, but there was something about the movie that just I didn't give myself over to watching the movie. I felt like it was, I didn't feel like it was drawing me into the story. Yeah. It was a little distracting to yeah. me. That's how I felt about the, I don't know if it was the cinematography. There was something about it that was a little distracting. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem to flow very well to me. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it was the long shots and the, you know. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Know, what yeah. did you think of Scudder? I thought the relationship he had with Scudder was portrayed much more definitively in the movie, you mm-hmm. know, like where they ended up with each other and all of that. Whereas in the book, that was a little uncertain. You know, it's kind of like you leaves you hanging. Mm-hmm. You know, you're hopeful, but it leaves you hanging. Yeah. That's how I felt. And um, I also, there was a point with that one where, you know, it, it seemed, um, I don't know the right word. It, it it seemed like it was just about love to me. Like Scudder took a risk to show himself and come and um, essentially throw himself at Morris, yeah. right? I mean, he climbed into his bedroom window up a ladder and kind of got into bed with him. And how, you know, no matter who you are and who you're with, there's risk and vulnerability in Absolutely, that. Yeah. You know, it's just that the stakes are a lot higher for them, mm-hmm. you know. Particularly yeah. back then. Well, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. Ben Kingsley. who Ben Kingsley plays the hypnotist, who's an American, which I didn't pick that up in the book, but yeah. I, that makes sense with America being the more progressive mm-hmm. country at that time anyway. But he also, it was like kind of with a Texas drawl, which was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah that, that line, go get a gun. Right. <laughs> go walk around with a gun. It sounded much more American than yeah. I... When we read it, yeah. 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 Yeah, but 
I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. And I'm glad I read the book. This is a book I would have never picked up. So mm-hmm. thank you, Thomas, for encouraging us yes. to do this as a read-along. And all the all the readers who voted for it. Yes. And we'll keep the conversation going on, on um, the Goodreads page and social media. So if you want to jump in and, and talk some more, we're going to keep talking about it ourselves, I'm sure. Yeah. And if you watch the movie, get on there and give us your review. Yeah. Eat some popcorn or something. I dozed off just a couple times. <laughs> just quick. Very quick. Yeah. She, yeah, she was awake for the full frontal nudity portion. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, thanks, so that, thanks, Chris, for well, sharing that one. <laughs> no, that was a little shocking, too, yeah, I have to say. Yeah. Lots of full frontal on men. Which yeah, which you don't unusual. see very often. Yeah. I remember Jane Champion's The Piano, mm-hmm. where there's the full frontal scene, and everybody was shocked about mm-hmm. that. And that was also in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this movie, if Morris, was a full release, though, out in the world like The Piano was. <laughs> no <laughs> fun intended. making faces at me. <laughs> I think it's time for us to sign off. We're getting a little punchy. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. Yeah. Happy Happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody. Uh